All right, get ready for part two of This Marriage, Music and Poetry, featuring Eric Whitaker and Tony Silvestri. Today we're going to have a deep dive into their work Saint-Chapelle and their newest collaboration, The Sacred Veil. This is Early Music Monday. Episode 50. It's episode 50. I can't think of a better way to spend episode 50 than by talking about Saint-Chapelle and the Sacred Veil for a couple reasons. One, there are a lot of early music principles, concepts, elements, especially in Saint-Chapelle, but also in Sacred Veil. And while the aesthetic is very modern and contemporary, there's so much overlay between the two time periods. I think it's brilliant. So before we dive into the interview, I want to play for you a recording of Saint-Chapelle so you who may be unfamiliar with the piece can familiarize yourself with it. This recording comes from the Talus Scholars. Um, You can find this on YouTube and Apple Music, all your streaming places. It's also for sale. So Saint-Chapelle. First, I will read the poem by Tony, uh, and then you'll hear in the piece that it's in Latin, and we go into that a little bit later. But here's the text to Saint-Chapelle by Tony. An innocent girl entered the chapel, and the angels in the glass softly sang, Hosanna in the highest. The innocent girl whispered, Holy, holy, holy. Light filled the chamber, many colored light. She heard her voice echo, holy, holy, holy. Softly the angels sang, Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna in the highest. Her voice becomes light and the light sings, holy, holy, holy. The light sings softly, Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. It's very cool, super imaginative instantly transports you into that place. And if you've ever been to Saint-Chapelle, you know what it's like. And if you've seen pictures, you need to go, obviously. So here's a recording of the Talus scholars performing Saint-Chapelle.
then taking that a step further into what what I my pre Renaissance educated ears would think of something as more overtly inspired by early music in mm. Saint Chapelle that this this idea of this kind of chant you know and we're back to this Latin idea of but the story is so beautiful um, uh, that that Tony wrote of this girl and that I, I think it's the most imaginative just the minute I read it I say I'm there too yeah. and I, and I've been in the in the chapel before but it it felt like I hadn't been, and then I was experiencing it again for the first time. It's really cool. So, so maybe uh, you know, maybe the same conversation, but maybe some of the specifics about Saint Chapelle and how that piece kind of came about and came to fruition. Well, Tony, I'll jump in for a second. Only in that again, the anecdote is essential to the creation of the piece. It's really funny. These two are—I never thought about the connection between the two of them, but. I got commissioned by the Talis scholars to write a piece for their 40th anniversary. Yeah, wow. And um, no pressure. so already. <laughs> yeah, no yeah, pressure at all. <laughs> no pressure, right? That's a mountaintop experience. Oh. But here's where the real pressure started is they sent me their world tour program. So for their entire 40th anniversary, they were going to tour. I think it was like 190 concerts they did. And so they, they sent me the program. This is before I'd written the piece. And I swear to God, it went. Bird, Talus, Talus, Bird, Talus, Bird, Talus, Whitaker, new piece, Talus, Bird, Talus. And it was like, what what, what am I do you know what I mean? It's like LeBron Jordan, LeBron Jordan, LeBron Jordan, Eric, LeBron Jordan. It's like, yeah, what, like, what am I, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, what am I doing here? And so uh um I, I mean terrifying. I was really freaked out. I was really and right around that time I had visited Barcelona and um as I still am, I was, I just became enamored is the wrong word. I mean, truly obsessed with the Sagrada Familia, the, the Gaudi Cathedral, which isn't finished yet, but built into the architecture of the Gaudi in stone, or I guess concrete, is the word Sanctus, 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 just spiraling mm. up to heaven. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And in my mind, I thought, okay, there's a Sanctus to be written for them that could be in the style of bird or talus, but all melty and modernizer. Yeah. I don't know what, but at least it was the spark of an inspiration. And Tony, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I wrote a decent chunk of that Sanctus. Mm -hmm. And weirdly, some of those techniques ended up being used in You Rise, I Fall, because it was all mm -hmm. kind of bending up and then becoming something else. And by the way, which all goes back to the harmonic choir, this CD, that the other CD that Tony gave me. So all this bendy stuff. Yeah, cool. And I, I took it in. I worked really hard, and I took it into a rehearsal about a year before the piece was due, just to have them sing through it. And I swear, two seconds into them singing, I realized, oh, this is a disaster. I've gone completely the wrong direction. This isn't for this group of singers. I don't know if this is even going to be a piece ever, but I'm totally in the wrong direction. Mm, interesting. But it had me thinking about about buildings and the most sacred spaces I knew. And that's when I called up Tony and said, okay, how about Saint-Chapelle, which yeah. is arguably my favorite space in the world. Yeah. Um, the inside of that, that chapel in Paris. Yeah. It's unreal. And, and so that's then Tony, you took it from there. And I remember too, that, that writing a spiritual text, writing a liturgical text, had some baggage for you and so for you to say sanctus 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 in that context that was problematic 
And so we had to create a, a scenario where it's somebody else that says that. So part of my job was to create a context for Sanctus to be written by Eric Whitaker, but it's not Eric Whitaker's voice saying Sanctus, Sanctus, you know? Right, um, exactly right. It was so, yeah, it, that was so, I remember you sort of threading that needle. This is a conversation that Tony of Hyde, we've probably spent 2000 hours on, yeah. which is how yeah. to write a sacred piece without it being religious, without right. it being overtly, yeah, that's, uh, it's always what I want to do. It's always what we're trying to do. I think even the sacred veil is oh, in yeah. a way of, yeah. Yeah, so, so Tony is endlessly trying to, like he did in this, this way, he had the, you know, the voice of the angels saying, or the voice of yeah. the light saying the word Sanctus. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And I remember, I think, I think Eric, you had the, 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 the trope of the girl walking, the, the innocent girl walking into the, the cathedral. I think that seed you planted. And then, um, and then, yeah, I just, I started thinking about the windows and I'm an artist as well. And I do medieval illumination and I paint icons and stuff. And so the stained glass windows and medieval cool. art and liturgical art and all that kind of stuff. I, I just really geeked out about it. And also Saint Chapelle itself, just the historic importance of that space and how beautiful it is, how colorful it is. What it, It's like you're inside a jewel looking out yep. through the facets, you know, into the yeah. rest of the, the, the world. And, and I kind of geeked out about it and realized that, that the Latin has three different words for light, um, mm -hmm. depending on what the source of that light is. So there's lux and lumen and illuminatio. And so the, the light that comes from the sun is, is lux. Then, then it hits the windows and changes color and becomes lumen as it's going into the building. And then the girl looks up and is experiencing the light of the sun being transformed, but being transformed by a religious image and so there's something going on in her spirit that's transforming the light into illumination, which is both a physical thing, but also a spiritual thing. And so it's like, oh yeah, this is great. And all wow. that kind of, that's embedded in, in the meaning of what I was trying to get at. It's not necessarily overtly in the words of the poem. I think Saint-Chapelle is rather lean as a poem. Yeah. Um, it's one of those pieces that has forward momentum, but is very static at the same yeah. time. Um, and one experiences it liturgically, even though it's not necessarily liturgical, it's liturgical adjacent, but because it has the words of the Sanctus in it, the audience is going to bring their own theology to the piece. And so we're off the hook then Yeah. in making a theological statement. And it's brilliant. Um, and so I think it works on all those levels. And going back to what Eric said earlier, it's it's it works for the it worked for the Talus scholars as well, and it worked in the context of that program and in the way that they perform. And and it's it's I love hearing it performed. Um, as, yeah, I much the, prefer it's a meditation. Yeah, than recorded. Yeah, and I love to conduct it. And yeah, um, yeah so and it, to me, it's like you said, it's very overtly 
I'd say more bird than talus, but actually the, 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 the dark stuff reminds me of talus, but the, just the, the, the writing of counterpoint and especially that middle section, it's, yeah. it's probably as close as I'll ever come to just saying, okay, let's, what is it like to walk in William Byrd's shoes, you know? Yeah. In um, today's world. Yeah. That's amazing. In today's world. That's exactly right. And, and I distinctly remember the, the chant, the Ave Maristella, the very famous. Right. It's my favorite melody maybe on earth yeah and i think i first learned it really learned it while i was at cambridge this is maybe 10 years ago and hearing people sing that in an actual chapel at, at cambridge and just feeling the ancientness of this years yeah. before i got to experience it i remember tony saying to me can you imagine that some of these melodies are sung only once a day or, or only once a year they're sung on the day that they're supposed to be sung and never again and then if you're a monk and you wait an entire year to hear a melody again that that just aches your heart that way. Yeah. And then you get to hear it. And I remember too, it was it was very cold. And the chapels at Cambridge get actually cold when it's yeah. cold out, right? The the yeah. it's a living, breathing organism, those buildings. Yeah. And so so I I I knew that I wanted to start in that same way. And so to me, the beginning of Saint Chapelle is very much a, a cut from the same cloth as Ave Maristella. Yeah, and I I love the your your the Eric Whitaker singer single of Ave Maristella and the 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 Chelsea Carol, and that that's where I first heard that piece too, and I was like, oh, we're doing that like so we did <laughs> yeah. it we did it just a couple of years ago for the first time finally because it, oh, it's really? the same yeah we did it at, a, at the Cathedral of the Madeline up here in Salt Lake and and did another bunch of John Tavener and other meditative things oh. it was beautiful but. But yeah, that me and that melody. I mean, we did Saint Chapelle, Sound of Ages. My pro group, we did that at the Western ACDA conference in Salt Lake. Oh, did you really? Yeah, yeah. and so it was loved it. Like it was, it was awesome. So, it, it, how did we miss that, this? I, it was we were the the seven thirty a.m. concert on like the first day. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, we were also in, we were in town for like eleven hours. Like yeah, like that, not even a full day. Even. Yeah, it was yeah. wild. And also but we, the last. We, Paired it with Dufayi and had sack butts and with a with the the new pair Rosarum. Oh, wow. It was all about architecture and music was the was the theme of the concert. And so it was, it, yeah. And it to me, it was like this is taking you to that space as physically as possible without apparition being a real thing. And and I think it's your, your use of that chant that the bird talus intertwining of the lines and so so my my other que this question is related to this piece but really to your works more broadly of the concept of counterpoint of i try to ask my theory students what is counterpoint they're like well polyphonies well not really it could be maybe but th this idea that the line is independent but that it is completely interdependent at the same time of this line can stand alone, but it works perfectly with the other lines. Hmm. I feel like is really, you know, everyone in my world, my colleagues think Eric Whitaker, shiny, shimmery, cool cluster chords. Yeah. But I was like, well, but his line is so good that it's really singable. It's not just this, when you really look at it, it's really contrapuntally sound. Thank you. So, Thank you so, that. so, like, how, so, how do you, when you're a pro, maybe you can use Saint Chapelle as an example. 
of this concept. But when you're when you're trying to approach this, how do I balance this vertical idea and this horizontal idea? How do you come well, to that? Well, it's really beautiful the way you described counterpoint, which is that you know that that it's the line is complete on its own and then it requires the context of everything else for it to work. But that's exactly how I write. So it doesn't matter if I'm writing homophonic you know, clustery, shimmery chords or if I'm writing like actual traditional counterpoint like in right. Saint-Chapelle. Every line has to have its own integrity. Hmm. And I work and work and work on making sure that every line is singable, that it's got its own logic, that it starts and ends in a place that, that the singer themselves in a personal level feels that that they've taken a little journey that there's yeah. a satisfying chunk of text whatever that thing is that they sing that it, it to me that's the only way any of those shimmery chords actually work and yeah it's, it's so strange this idea that you could just put a whole bunch of shimmery chords together and make a piece that's so far i haven't figured that out that doesn't seem to work that way <laughs> no like, it does not at all yeah and the reason i think that singers buy into it and enjoy performing is because they each have their line wherever they are no matter what's happening and so with Saint-Chapelle being more traditionally contrapuntal, I think at some point, I, I, I'd really love to sit down with Bird or Talis and ask them, how do you do this? Do you have a yeah. basic structure for a, the way the chords are going to change underneath? And then you write the counterpoint into that? Or do you start with a single line and then kind of calligraphy the other lines around it? Yeah. For me, it's... Um, Tony often talks about writing poetry as um, part of the process is like a crossword puzzle hmm. where you have eight different things that have to be satisfied. You know, this down, this thing, this, we know that this one box will be this letter, two, two boxes letter will be this, all this blank. That's how it feels to me. It's like, okay, I know I've got that moment and that moment, then how do we weave that together? Yeah. And then when it comes to traditional counterpoint, it's just endless pushing and pulling. So it's, okay, I've written that, and I've written that, and I think we're, oh, no, I painted myself into a corner. Kill that first line. Rewrite yeah. that. How does that, does that get, you know, and you just kind of keep massaging it like clay until yeah. suddenly, oh, that holds together, and everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. I'd love to find out how the Renaissance composers approached their yeah. point. Yeah, me too. We talk about it all the time of, did they, did they, I can't remember what the word is in my Renaissance graduate course of, you know, some scholars think, early, early Renaissance medieval composed the entire Cantus Firmus first mm. and then did one line at a time and then, but, or did they do it little bits with both? Yeah, I, I have the same curiosity. So it's right. fascinating. And I imagine at some point it becomes an intuitive exercise. So sure. it just is the way it is, right? At some point you're Bach and it's like, that line just goes there because it just goes there. Trust yeah, me. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's like, because <laughs> I don't have time to put them all down at the same time. Right. right. Like, um, and, and, and so it, ideally, though, when all of those are written, I think what I'm looking for is in each line, the sense of inevitability mm -hmm. that as you're singing it, no matter where you are in the in the fabric of the thing, that your line can only do one thing that once you've got it in your mind, you actually think you've got the melody. Yeah, and because I still feel this way. There's this um, this Robert Parsons Ave Maria that we sang. Do you remember this, Tony? This was the year you were in choir with me. We sang a Robert Parsons Ave Maria. It's super beautiful. And um, I'm the bass, right? So I absolutely don't have the melody. But <laughs> if it comes on in any context, I'm just singing along the melody, which yeah. is the bass line, right? Yeah. Because it's, it's just so exquisitely crafted and, and it's so satisfying for every part. Yeah. That's amazing. 
So so then that actually piques my curiosity about so Tony when when you're writing because I believe that these concepts as illustrated in y- your collaboration together because because of the uniqueness I think of your collaboration that that push and pull that Eric is talking about exists in your poems too and not that they don't exist I mean of course they exist in all poetry as a general art form but I think with unique choral lens that mm-hmm. that your poems have this same kind of contrapuntal idea even if it's it's just one line of text but how do you shape your poems let's say you're not working with eric and it's one of those you're kind of in a bubble how do you shape yeah. your texts <clears throat> with this kind of organic line idea in mind well i mean i try to be mindful of vowel and ending consonant. I've, I've been in those rehearsals. I know how difficult it is to get <laughs> yeah. people to do that right. And so I try to be mindful of that. I, I, I chant through every line. Yeah. And, and I want to, I want to be able to conduct myself while I'm speaking as well. Cool. So it has to have a kind of singable cadence to it. Right. So I'm, I'm trying to be intentional about all those things. And then sometimes every once in a while I'll get, a pair of words that sound really cool together, right? Yeah. And they'll become a kind of um, a, a snag. They'll become a thorn and I have to have more of that, right? Mm. And so I'll find a way, like an internal rhyme, for example. It's sure. not, the structure of the poem is not dependent on this little throwaway internal rhyme. And so I'll do my best to Sondheim my way through it and create another <laughs> somewhere else. There's the, you know, the, the, the one, the one little uh, uh, internal rhyme suggests a, a, a something. And then later in the poem, uh, there's the little resolution of that, cool. of that thing. Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes it just happens. And I, and I claim wow. that it's intentional when it really wasn't. <laughs> sure. Um, but uh uh, I think the key, the key really is the intentionality to make it a singable poem. Yeah. If I were just writing a poem for its own sake to appear on the page, I would make completely different choices. Yeah. Um, and, and, and proper poets, page poets um, yeah. <laughs> are as intentional about what they do. They're just, they have a different lens. I, I like the way that you put that, the choral lens. Um, th- there are restrictions to what I do as a sure. poet because of the instrument of performance. Yeah. Uh, if I were giving a poetry reading, I would make different choices than if I were putting the poem on the page. There are some poems that are shaped like a flower or they, they go in a spiral or something like that, where there are, there is, there's skipped uh, space, there's empty space. And, and it only works when you're looking at the poem. Right. Uh, those sorts of things are not, I'm not concerned about those sorts of things. Sure. Likewise, somebody that writes that way would not necessarily be concerned with, with avoiding crunchy consonants. Mm. Um, if I'm writing an art song, somebody that's commissioned me to write an art song, a soloist can sing anything. So I'm mm. less likely to avoid um, crunch with an, w- when I'm writing for a solo uh, singer than when I'm writing for a choir. Yeah, and I feel like those can almost be used just as intentionally for dramatic effect too, because yeah. it's the soloist doing it versus an entire choir. And yeah, well, and you, there's also there's also a, a percussive effect to some sounds, 
And so, you know, we talk about the vowels a lot, but the consonants are as important as the vowels. And you have things like, uh, um, what is it from sleep? The, the, um, the flickering flame or what I can't remember the line of it now. Yeah, that's exactly but, right. But these, yeah. these Fs, uh, the, the alliterative F sounds make a kind of yeah in the in the choir as it's performed in the way that eric put the different entrances in different measures or different beats um it it, it makes the the person who's scared of the noises in the night uh, uh frightening shadow flickering light i guess that's yeah. the that's the line it, it makes the person look all around for these sounds that are that are coming all around them um those sorts of things i stumble on them or they are intentional you know yeah if i can think about it in advance that's great so, so then I, I don't know how much time you both have. I have as much time as you need. So I'd love to finish with Sacred Veil and maybe how this culmination, I mean, without spoilers, I don't know if you're working on anything new together right now, but as of public knowledge, it's kind of your most recent thing, yeah. the, the latest. So, you, you know, we went from Luke's or Rumque through kind of these then other two pieces. And I'd love to finish with, you know, just these concepts we've been talking about coming to fruition in Sacred Veil and maybe how it's taken the next step in both of your crafts. Hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, boy, Sacred Veil. It's, um, I only, I pause just because it's, it, it feels like a, a whole universe to fall into. Yeah. Um, uh, boy, where to even begin? <laughs> yeah, no, let, me, uh, yeah. let me start. Yeah, let, sure. Let me start. I think for me, you, you talk about like where where it fits in our collaborative career together, and 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 it, it certainly stretched me um, in in writing more vulnerably, more personally, less artifice, mm. less craft, and more just gushing emotion, more authenticity, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, and so while I tried to be intentional about what I wrote and I choosing vowel sounds and tweaking lines and moving things around the basic raw material that I'm working with, with sacred veil is, is pulled right out of my, my spirit. Yeah. Right. In a way that's very different from her sacred spirit soars, for example, which was a highly artificial um, kind of, constructed reliquary of, 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 an, of an intention, right? Yeah. Sacred Veil is the complete opposite of that from my perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, constantly crying during the process, revisiting awful times, revisiting beautiful, delicious times. Um, it, Eric, you weren't bullied, but you were, you were, you were sweet and nurturey and brotherly during that whole process. You had to push, right? In the same way that you may have had to push with Leonardo, but, but you did so having been together with me for 30 years with the understanding that this was a hard thing for me to do. The hardest. Um, yeah, yeah, I can only imagine. Um, and, I, and I view it as, as such a precious gift to me and to the memory of Julie, the, the whole process, the process of making it, the process of writing it, that your work uh, as a composer, and then every single time a choir takes on the responsibility of that work. They put on that mantle of the sacred veil and, and share it 
it's, it's, it's an offering. I, I can't think of it in any other way. It's a kind of ministerial offering and it's, and it's a continual gift. And so I am forever grateful for that. Wow. That's so beautiful, Tony. Yeah. I, it's funny because when, when you first wrote to me, Cameron, and you were saying, you know, that you've got this early music podcast and, and that you'd like to talk about these pieces, you know, ideally Leonardo and Saint-Chapelle, and then also Sacred Veil, I was really thrilled because I don't know if I ever shared this with Tony, but the aesthetic, our, our North Star when we were writing Sacred Veil was only truth, that every time we felt, you, Tony mentioned that word artifice, which feels strong to me, but, but that... I always imagined that the pieces that we wrote beforehand were what I would call little snow globes, like they're mm. these perfect little universes that sit up on a, on a shelf, and and they're just magical, and they've got a beginning and an end, and it's just it's just this little world. It doesn't diminish them, but they that's just right. a, an approach to making them. And with Sacred Veil, we talked over and over. I mean, it was years on process about every time we'd come up to one of those moments where we were getting snow globey in any way, even a single word or a single musical gesture, we kind of relentlessly went back to know what what actually happened. How did that mm. actually feel? What are we talking about here? And I also remember that very early on, we abandoned the idea of what are people going to think of this? Yeah. That, that it's, for both of us, it's very important that we communicate with an audience and that we're building an, a piece so the audience as well as the performers can have this ecstatic experience, whatever that piece is. And at some point, there was just too much to, like, too many plates to hold. And we realized, okay, we let's not worry yeah. about that. Let's, let's just be honest. And this is a long way of saying that, that what I always had in my mind were these, these paintings by Jan van Eyck, this, mm. this you know, Flemish painter, 15th century, and that they're, they're formal and frozen, and every single brushstroke means something. Yeah. Right. It's that that kind of old school art where everything has meaning. It's it's you know it it's all symbolic. It's all related to this and to this and to this. And it's it just like layer upon layer of of um, of intention and meaning. And yeah. that's that's in a way I think that's where the culmination of what we've been doing for the past twenty years together as poet and composer. That that's what really came to bear in Sacred Veil because we we just we left no moment unturned. It was like, this is what we're going to make with every every breath we take. Yeah, and that comes across so clearly. I think it's hard to, it's it's not overtly hard for me to step into what the common audience experiences because like my wife's not a musician. She's She runs a law firm. My dad, I, we, I grew up playing sports. He's like, just sing in English. What is this? You know, so like, like this is, so I like have my family in my head when I'm doing anything. So I get, but Me I, too. as I'm able to step out and say, what would the common audience hear from Sacred Veil? It's exactly what you both, I, I can't say enough how much you achieved that goal of this is not, a little snow globe as you described this is just how it would feel and I, i'm just like man i can't even i've never been there to that emotional place but this is what it sounds like kind of what we talked about earlier of these words musically sound like this and this is the emotion and it's this these raw emotional nuggets in these emotional and textual golden bricks built together to be kind of your experience tony with 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 the yeah. experience itself and so I, I think that and that's you know 
I think that that's what, in a way, these early music composers were doing too. Of, you know, you take Bird, he was writing these for the underground Catholic services, yeah. and it and it is him in these texts and the music, and and so I think that's I think it's beautiful. It's a sonic ministry in a way that mm-hmm. what what they were doing, and I'd like to think that's what we were doing with without. Through through our own unique ministerial voices, yeah, um, totally. Well, one thing that I I think what I hope going forward, it's been the oddest thing because you know we we all did those those concerts together in Salt Lake, and then yeah, at least for me that was the last time I conducted. That was, it was two years ago, and yeah, so wild. It's, so it's an it's the oddest thing to have this piece that we worked so long on, and then kind of present it to the world of choirs and say, okay, what do you think about this? Are you going to perform it? How do you interact with this? And then just. It yeah. just has gone completely silent. So what I'm hoping, though, when we when we start to get back more and more to performing and, and choirs pick it up, is that it resonates in exactly the way you're talking about. But I I believe ultimately the reason it will resonate is because of the specificity of it. That at no point did we start to generalize. Did we say this is this thing and this is this? It's like we endlessly kept going. What is the actual details? of the yeah. actual thing that happened to Tony and Julie. What what was that? And then try to present that in the most unadorned fashion. Yeah. Which I actually think a lot of early music is like that. I mean, they're, they're setting liturgical texts, so that's in a way unspecific, but you said it best that like Bird, for instance, was writing about his faith. Bach was yeah. writing about his faith, writing every note yeah. of Bach. You get a sense of his world, his his belief system. Right, right, right. It's, right. Yeah, it's, and, and even like this neo Reneva, would you get into Poulenc of this, you know, the two sides of Poulenc's personality coming to fruition in his, and you're like, huh, that's not what I pictured when I picture solemn praise and this boom chuck thing, you know, whatever, like, but it's the, and I think that for most of us, in my perspective, what you said, Eric, is really interesting of both of your attempt to be as specific as possible because I think a lot of the of us choral musicians are well, we want this this general idea, and abstract is the art. But I think there's something really beautiful and Renaissance inspired to this realism, this return to realism that's inherent in this piece specifically. So how do you juxtapose the two? I mean, I guess like you said, your goal wasn't to to uh, placate's the wrong word, but to cater, I guess, to an audience. But how did you two come to that where you're balancing, okay, we're being very specific, but we're still making art. It's not a monologue or a, it is art, but now how do we make it real specific? Yeah, it's a super good question. I, I'm sure it would take hours to really no, answer, but. <laughs> it's, it's that I think we just kept challenging each other to get, to, well, there was two things. It was not only were we trying to be honest, but somewhere very early on, it was like, what, are, what is the least amount of gestures yeah. we can do? We were trying to be very lean. Yeah, mm-hmm. what is the most efficient possible way you can yeah. say all of this stuff in terms of the music, in terms of the poetry? Cool. And so like in home, right? You feel like home, it's four words. That's it. Or you rise, I fall, which could just be this epic, long poem is yeah. so much more powerful because it's distilled into, you know, this, this, 
it's it's like this impossibly dense uh, yeah. world in in just a few words. Yeah, created. I think the specificity, really, the specificity, the honesty, the truth of it, make it very powerful. But I think the, the, it because it's vulnerable and authentic, then there's a there is a universality about it, and that even though it's specifically about my experience. I think audiences respond to it the way that they do, certainly out of out of out of empathy and sympathy for me and for Julie and for my kids. But but they write their own grief, they project their own grief onto the work, and and I think because we didn't make it so so specifically me, right? You feel like home, for example. I remember the original version of that poem was much longer and it had all pages these details longer, yeah. about pages of it sure. and all that just got stripped away. And so, so you feel like home. Anyone who's loved someone can understand and, and, and project their love onto that text. And, and when, when you do that, then they put themselves in the work and then they can have the experience in, in some small way of facing the potential loss of, or the actual loss of a person that they loved. Yeah. Um, and so in be, it's, it's a weird kind of paradox in being specifically my experience, it becomes universally everyone's experience. Mm. Wow, that's profound. Cause I think that's what we do just in everyday life. The more genuine and vulnerable, excuse me, <clears throat> the more genuine and vulnerable you are with people, the more they will return. And, human connection is what, up, yeah. is what we're all trying to do. So I think that's spot on. Years ago, I read this story, uh, not a story, but a, a study, and it was about they they suspected through these tests that they had done that, that dolphins, I can't believe this is where we're going, but that um, <laughs> that dolphins, so as they're swimming through the ocean, that they're, they're scanning the landscape using sonar, right? So these clicks and whistles and everything, and they're bouncing off all these objects around them, and they're receiving them back. And so they get this very detailed map of the ocean floor and all these objects around them in their minds based on the information that sonar is bringing them. Now, what's fascinating about this is when they speak to other dolphins, they also speak in sonar. And so what the study suspected was that it's not just that they're communicating an idea of the place, they're actually sending out the same information that they received back and the dolphins themselves that are hearing the information are experiencing the same landscape. Mm. So their idea, the idea is that when they communicate, they're actually reliving the experience. Wow. And, and I always hoped that, that we would make something like that, right? Where you're, it's so real that actually the audience is, is living the experience, that it's a yeah. genuine communal experience. Yeah. Um, and and I'd, I'd always aspired for that when we were making well, no, that's not true. When we started, that's what I aspired for. I was hoping for mm -hmm. that. And then, like I said, we really abandoned that quickly because, my God, did we get in our heads about how far do we go with this and how raw yeah. do we get and how much do we share? Right. What are we doing? And, you know, yeah. uh, all of these things. And at some point, I think we were just, yeah, we were just led by a, by a need to be authentic. That was it. Yeah. And so, I mean, you mentioned before, I can't remember which one about, you know, you feel like home or you rise, I fall, these small little things condensed to what are some maybe uh, for those listeners who haven't heard it yet, uh, mm. CD is out, The it was the Los Angeles Master Chorale, right? That's that right. recorded it. It's beautiful recording. 
um, can go check that out and please listen to it like following with the text all in one sitting, like prepare yourself. It's not like, let's just throw this on in the background type music for, but walk us through maybe some other of those moments specifically textually and musically that are these small little bricks that have expanded into a movement, so to speak. Yeah. Where do we start? Um, I know the one I want to talk about, which one um, is magnetic poetry. Um, this is a poem that Julie wrote mm. and it, it's, I mean, I know all of the personal layers of that poem, but it just works as a beautiful poem. It puts together some really amazing, unexpected words and, and it, and she created this beautiful text. And I listened to that track over and over and over and over again. We talk about truth. That, that movement to me is truth with a capital T. It's funny, it's yeah. my favorite movement in the whole. Oh my gosh, I cannot get enough of that movement. And, and you know, it takes me back to, it takes me back to the good times of our relationship. And it's become, it's not just the mo a movement of a, of a choral piece to me, it's now the, the er soundtrack of my actual lived experience. In a way, wow. the sacred veil has gone back in time and replaced the actual memories of, the, of those moments for me and kind of redeemed them and sacralized them Wow. Even the hard, even the hard parts, right? When I think of Julie's death now, the actual moment of her death, before it was a horrifying thing, and I could see her skeletal face and the fear in the room and how awful. I don't see that anymore because now that that moment has a soundtrack, a custom-made soundtrack by Eric Whitaker, right? Yeah. It it has completely Again, no pressure. Re, it has completely remade those experiences and and elevated them. I have to say yeah. it's elevated the whole thing. That's beautiful. And I think we I think all human beings do this. We go back in our in our memories and and we we polish and and yeah. remake memories and we have constructed memory. We have actual memories and we have constructed memories. Um in, in, in the case of my relationship with Julie and, and her struggle uh, at the end, I now have, um, I have embellished, bejeweled memories. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. Of, of those experiences. Hmm. Yeah. But yeah, magnetic poetry. That's, yes. that's... And, and Tony, I, I can't remember if Tony said it at the beginning, but the, the poem was literally something she wrote with those refrigerator magnets right you know, right you got just putting, oh, wow. putting, putting words randomly together yeah yeah wow. so she, but not so randomly right so she she mm -hmm. made this poem that is it's really i mean with all due respect to tony sitting here it's one of the best poems i know i mean yeah. honestly it is so gorgeous it's so beautifully written it's um and and that came really late that was one of the last pieces that we wrote in this 12 movement piece the the sacred veil and, um, you know, talking about the, the intentionality. So Julie's theme, and there's a million reasons for that, but the sacred veil is represented, the veil itself is represented by this middle C. It goes throughout the entire piece. Julie's theme is just these three notes. And so it rises up to the E flat, it aspires up, and then falls back to the veil. 
But then there's this counterpoint to her theme, which is the other side of the veil. So literally below the middle C, which is, so she's here and then there's this, and you hear this played with all throughout the piece, but in magnetic poetry, it's the first time that we get, that we get this, like it's, it's surfing above the, mm. and so that even that first piano is, this, this just kind of rolling of this, yeah. like Tony and I always describe it, it's the, an eight millimeter film of an afternoon at, at, you know, at Santa Monica Pier. Yeah. And, and, but, but it, like each of the notes and each of the meanings and symbols in there is very deliberate. And unlike say an impressionistic painting, my, my favorite um, of, of the eras, more like those, those great Flemish masters where it is donk. That's what yeah. I mean. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. And there's, there's no mistaking what the symbol is. Yeah. Do you, do you know what I mean? Totally. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's uh, in, in a way a very realist, but also um I wonder what the what the art term is for that for symbolism that is uh, unadorned that it that it is what it is. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm not educated enough to know that. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, but but well, I'm so curious now. And if if you don't want to get into it, you you don't have to. But that that you said you know that that minor third ascent. Mm. What and you said there's a million reasons for that uh, specific interval that that to me that those are the elements that i think expand right and in the renaissance it's like whoa this little nugget actually appears everywhere yeah and and is a really timeless technique and 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 you can see it in the poetry you can see it in visual art you can see, <clears throat> you can see it in film so what why maybe go into maybe one or a couple of those reasons of why maybe that particular element is the theme for julie Okay, well, first, I'll, let's dive right into the deep end of my neuroses. And so it's for, it, even as a child, I remember being uh, haunted by the number three, and I still am. You know, kids have mystical relationships to numbers and, and the, mm -hmm. the world around them, but three was always my thing. And, and I don't know if it was obsessive-compulsive, but I would have all kinds of things where I had to open a door. I had to touch the knob three times before I opened it that playing little league baseball, I'd have to tap the plate three times with my bat before I swung. If I didn't get it exactly right, then I had to clean the plate, swing yeah. the bat over it with my air and then tap it again three times. But already then I knew that I wouldn't, it wouldn't be as good in at bat because I had sort of muddied right. the waters with the second. So there's, there's just this mysticism about the number three. And God knows yeah. I'm not the first person to have a mystical relationship to the number three, right? Right, right. And then I remember <laughs> when I sat down and I very first, Tony presented me with what is now the first movement. And it begins with whenever there is birth or death, which maybe is one of the great openings all time of any work of writing. I mean, my God. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Right? Yeah. You are instantly um, like drawn in. That is, it's. Yeah. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Like, all right, yeah. yes, I'm, I'm here. I'm showing up. So, and I don't normally work this way where I just start setting music to poetry that I'm reading. I usually spend weeks or months thinking about it, planning it, drawing things, strategizing structure, all this. And I came up pretty quickly with that. That's whenever there's birth or death, right? Yeah. And then I played it again. And then I played it again. But this time. 
right? So at least one of those little Arvo parrot. It's whatever whatever the Arvo parrot question mark looks like, where the question and the answer is in the same chord, yeah, right? Yeah, and just stops. And and then I just had this very simple realization, which was that that number three, that pattern of three, completes the circle. That the first time you hear it, it's new information. The second time, the brain immediately recognizes it as, as a pattern, and the third time. The circle is complete and it's the end of an idea. And this is how liturgies work in yeah. lots of religions, right? This repetition of three over and over. And what you do is on a grand scale, you start creating this sense of forward momentum and standing still at the same time, just yeah. as you do in a liturgy. And there's this formality about all of it. So very early on, I knew that, okay, my governing principle for the entire damn piece was a third. So yeah. that means we're, we're gonna go up a third and we're gonna go down a third and even better, it's going to be three notes long, right? Yeah. And then that kind of thing just gets played with over and over and over. These little patterns of threes, up, down, left, right. Cool. Um, all, all with the aspiration, because I know I'm never going to get there, of creating something like, say, the St. John Passion, the, the Bach, which is layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of meaning and construction and, and connection and right yeah. things working together in... In, in just an imp infinite possibly complex way. That's right. Yeah. Because Bach doing what I'm trying to do in the smallest, palest form is to is to tell it like it is, is to yeah. reflect the beauty of the natural world and the world around us. Because that is what that's that's what the laws of physics do. That's what yeah, that's what nature does. And that's what the human experience does, I think, is it manifests yeah. itself in these endlessly spiraling, repeating patterns. Sorry, I'm one of, go on. That's on. cool. One of the cool things too to add to that is maybe yeah. unbeknownst to Eric, you know, every couple has a song um, that's their song. And me and Julie, our song is the very thought of you. And I forget to do those little ordinary things that everyone <laughs> ought to do. And so when I heard da da da, I was wow. thinking the very thought of you, and it just made me it made me weep the first time I heard it. I didn't know this. That wow, is that's... profound. Yeah, that that is truly profound. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's so, oh sorry, that's how, sorry. Julie, that's how Julie's theme plays, right? And then yeah. then what happens is the cello comments on it. It keeps doing this, um, and then it keeps mm -hmm. reaching always pulled back into the veil yeah and so even from the beginning trying to communicate to the audience that the story you're about to hear and frankly that we're all living i don't have a good word for it but fated is probably the close closest that i can that's inevitable hmm. we really don't have to get into this um, i'm really <laughs> starting to talk like a californian but i think that we have a very incomplete understanding of time and the way that it unfolds in front of us i actually think there's something, something simpler and more difficult to understand that's happening. But the idea that, that you know, star-crossed lovers, it's, it's written there in, yeah. in, in, the, in the fabric itself, and there's no escaping it. So there's this inevitability about it. And then there's this, this kind of sweet, melancholy sorrow and maybe even a little dread about the fact that this wheel is just going to roll. But at the same time, then there's this incredible comfort that, okay, then and just relax and go downstream. It's, yeah. You're going down anyway. You know, you're going to get wet, so stop kicking. 
you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> and I think in a, in a in a kind of a roundabout way, but both you and Tony have said things that reminded me of this kind of, and this is not necessarily to be theological or anything, but this C.S. Lewis quote where he says, you know, heaven once attained will work backwards and hell once attained will work backwards. So hmm. the one in heaven and the one in hell, when they get to that moment was like, I was always in heaven or I was always in hell. And they were, they will both be right because your past experiences get shaped by then your destination. So this inevitability, it's, it's this kind of concept of the three, the circle, the coming back, the reaching back, time, melding. I think it's all this really cool concept of the things that we've been talking about so far. So how does the, and to bring it back to Tony of, you know, did this, did Eric, did you communicate this idea of the three before, like early on the process, how much of the text was written? Tony, did that shape your writing going forward in any way? Real quick, I'll, I'll say that, so, so I wrote that first movement and I was most of the way through it. And that's when I said to Tony, I think there's a bigger piece here. We mm. never intended to write this piece. You know, Tony just yeah. presented me with this poem that already existed. Yeah. And then I wrote it pretty quickly. And then when we started going looking for it, so in that first movement, there's a bit where they sing um, silent, silent either in or out of this, our fragile fleeting world. Like, yeah. Oh, it's just another, right? Just yeah. Like, like that's, that's a whole, that's a whole hour's worth of music right there yeah. that Tony presented. But the melody for it that I had written was. That's what I wrote and that's in that first movement. Yeah. So the next thing we wrote was the 11th movement, which is you rise, I fall, not knowing how many movements there will be or anything. I just said to Tony, let's go, let's go to the heart of your entire experience. Let's go to the moment of Julie's death. And then I remember I sent you that. You remember, Tony? I sent mm -hmm. you that melody and said, it needs to be this many syllables. It's going to be this melody so that Tony could sing over the top of it and, yeah. and create. And so the words that he came up with are so profoundly beautiful. I don't know of any lyricist or poet anywhere who can work all three ways the way that Tony does, which is here's a group of notes, add words to it, give me a poem so that I can add music to it, or let's sit next to each other, you know, like like Ringo and John, and uh, yeah. and and <laughs> let's let's do this at the same time. Yeah, wow. And so working then, knowing once we realized this kind of key of the first poem was gonna have the little seeds of all these other movements, then I kind of, I had to use the, the, the rhythm, the number of syllables, the kind of idea of these different lines of the first poem, each of which gets repeated three times in the first movement. And then each, one, each line becomes the, the seed of a whole nother movement mm. later. Cool. So yeah, we, we did have some of those structural, um, structural understandings. But every time I hear Eric speak about the work, I learned something new about, <laughs> about what he went through and his process and his intention. Sure. Um, it just, it's layers upon layers that keep getting unfolded. And I love that even the creators of a work of art can learn more about it over time and it can right. change meaning for them over time. That's um, cool. Wow. Well, I could go on, well, and, and I'll just, I just, uh, end with the the, I, the concept of my favorite moment where I was literally like taken aback is when you said 
he takes one last breath and leaps mm. as he steals himself. I, I was, I literally like fell out of my chair. I was like, oh, I'm dead. I'm deceased. You know, <laughs> because, because you you recognize the quote. Yeah, yeah. and I, and it was just like, oh man, and it it was just this cool thing of. You know, we're connecting. How do you connect your own like pain to to Leonardo's pain to the past, the future, the present? And this became this. It immediately opened up to this universal human experience, like you said before, but with through something really specific. And so, to bring it back to Leonardo, I I just think that the old, new, the old and current combining together to create something new is one of the most beautiful beautiful. things. And that's why I have this podcast. That's why I started the why I started Sound of Ages, and why I love your collaboration together because I see it so clearly. Um, so that's amazing. I, think, I, I know I speak for Tony when I say that it's so meaningful to us that you, that you recognize that line. Do you know what I mean? That, that you, sure, that, yeah. and then you connect to it and it's, it's, um, yeah, that's, that's why we're doing what we're doing. It's really, yeah. it's, it's really exciting. Well, thank you both significantly. It's been, we've, I'm going to split this into part one and part two, and <laughs> which I feel great about because then I don't have to record for two more weeks, which is great, you know? So, but uh, if, if, to, to end, are, are any of, is there anything like I would love to, to send people your way, Eric, to the masterclass, the beautiful mess uh, oh, masterclass sure. and where people can find that uh, Tony, if there's anything that you're working on new commissions, things to be on the lookout for that you want, that you would love to kind of just give a shout out for. Wow. Um, I've been working a lot, actually uh, writing a lot of, of stuff all through COVID. I, I guess I never did stop working and I'm sure it's grateful for that. Um, some big works, an album coming out, uh, Vocus 8, uh, has recorded um, the Requiem Novum mm. with Swedish composer Morten Janssen. Oh yeah, and in a way, in a way, Requiem Novum is is a kind of not a companion work, but it 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 walks alongside Sacred Veil vale in in some in some ways. Uh, what cool. Morten has done is he's taken the traditional movements of the Requiem Mass, and then I've written companion poems for each of those movements, but from the perspective of the dead. Wow. So what do the people in the church sing? But then what is the dead person who's already in heaven? How do they respond to that? Wow. That's brilliant. And so in, in a way, Sacred Veil allowed me to, to pour deeply into my own personal anguish. And then the Requiem Novum is, is kind of the, the other side of that uh, experience um, from a more detached perspective. Um, and I had a lot of fun writing those texts and that's amazing. And, uh, so that's Vocious 8? Vocious 8. Yeah. And it'll be, um, uh, the album will come out this spring and then they're going to uh, present it in their spring live from London, um, concert. I think it'll be on Palm Sunday, I guess. Wow. Um, wow. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Yes. Super beautiful, but oh my god, I really can't wait to hear that. Um, yeah, and if people want to check out my masterclass, they can go to my website. Um, I'm uh, I've been working on an orchestra piece, so um, it's uh, for the National Symphony, and it'll be cool. performed. Yeah, uh, um, 
Well, I actually, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> April or May, I think April, but I, I will believe any of these concerts when I'm there yeah. know, at, at, at the end, shaking people's hands. That's, that's when yeah. I know it will have happened because until then, but, but it's, a. Sure. um, I think, I think I'm going to call it simply prelude in C and it's, it's a kind of an homage. It's, this is the 300th anniversary of the well-tempered clavier. Wow. And so I'm taking a piece that's, that's kind of deconstructing the very first movement from that, the C major prelude, the prelude. In yeah. C. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm working on. Again, right now. the old and new, it's just, that's how we do it. I love it. It's amazing. Yeah. To me, it's, I, I know this is, we're in almost at two hours now, but it's for me, that's where the beauty is. Tony and yeah. I talk all the time about how, you know, for millennia, people have been figuring things out and then somehow that wisdom, sometimes it just gets lost after generation after generation. And we have to rediscover it, rediscover it. And one of the beautiful things about the long tradition of Western music is that a lot of it is still there. So we can go back and we can listen to, to bird or we can, and, and, and it's so much of the wisdom that he, he spent all of his life unearthing is there for us to, to yeah. find. So same thing with Bach. It's like, okay, then let's, let's just, you know, let's have coffee with the masters here and see what they have to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, again, thank you both. Um, I really appreciate it. You, this has been like amazing for me just to sit and get a glimpse into the, the, the John and Paul Simon Garfunkel <laughs> uh, duo here. So Hall and Oates. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Hall and Oates. Yeah. For real. <laughs> Millie and Vanilli. That one's, I no. think, the winner for sure. No, I'm just kidding. The audience. So, yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> it's awesome. Hey, Thanks, Cameron, Cameron. I, there's a couple of other things that I'd like to plug if, if you don't yeah. mind. Yeah, no, absolutely. I um, would love to. In March, uh, God willing, I'll be traveling to Cambridge. Um, the Sydney Sussex College is celebrating a big anniversary. I think it's 500 wow. <laughs> of, the, of the college. And Jeez. so... Um, they commissioned me to write a new text uh, based on the De Profundis text. And so again, it's kind of a dialogue that goes back and forth between Latin and English. And Nico Muli is the composer uh, for that new piece. Um, and then you mentioned coffee, having coffee with Bach. Um, John Muleisen and I have written a new coffee cantata. No way. Yes. <laughs> Um, it's called the, the Cantata Caffeinata, and it will be, it is hilarious. It's not, oh it, man. It is hilarious, and it's set in a Starbucks-y kind of setting, yes. uh, and it'll be premiered this summer at the AGO convention in Seattle. Wow. So he's, he's scored it for the same, um, the same forces as the Coffee Cantata, and it'll be performed on the same program with <laughs> Coffee Cantata. Is it a comedy though, or it's a comedy? comedy. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a comedy. Yeah. Oh my god! I, can't I have no words. That is amazing. <laughs> that is such a great idea. So organists, yeah. check that out. Yeah, for real. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's incredible. How Dang. brilliant. All right, thanks for tuning in to episode 50 
Hopefully you guys had as much fun as I did. That was amazing, and I just feel on cloud nine and so inspired and it was incredible. So be on the lookout for the their upcoming works, the Coffee Cantata and the Requiem Novum from Tony and uh, the Prelude in C from Eric, and hopefully we get to hear those things soon. And check out the podcast, share the podcast, rate the podcast, review the podcast, donate to the podcast, do all the things with the podcast. And we'll see you next time on Early Music Monday.